Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. So this episode is brought to you by NorthPass Business. Against small businesses and startups, they often work with limited resources and reduce costs wherever possible. While this is sometimes practical, cybersecurity is one area where you don't want to cut corners. Creating strong, unique passwords for your company's accounts is a surefire way to defend your business from data breaches. However, with the number of personal and work logins we use daily, it's very easy to get password fatigue, leading to reusing the same passwords across accounts. So NordPass Business is a powerful password manager for organizations that removes the difficulty of generating and remembering strong passwords for you and your colleagues. Additionally, it allows for you to integrate single sign-on with your company's Google Workspace accounts and effortlessly create groups to share sensitive information across teams and projects. So see NordPass Business in action now with a three-month free trial by going to nordpass.com forward slash Pantera and use the code Pantera. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about the guests that we have today. I mean, we're going to be talking about building and scaling. I mean, quite an inspiring journey, you know, going from VC back to cash flow business. I think that that's a, a very interesting, you know, and unique transition there that we're going to go in detail. But again, you know, let's not make you all wait any longer. Let's welcome our guest today, Austin Allred. Welcome to the show. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be here. So originally born in Utah. So uh, yeah. how was life growing up there? I know that you grew up, you know, in a traditional, you know, Mormon family. And, you know, we have right now people tuning in from all over the world. So how was, you know, your upbringings? And, and also, what does it look like to be brought up in a traditional Mormon family? Yeah, I mean, it's good. It was, you know, the Mormon faith is very, very family centric. So I had two brothers and two sisters and we were always together. Uh, it's generally a very hardworking culture, very down to earth, sometimes to a fault uh, culture. But it was, yeah, if you think about, you know, Protestant work ethic, I think that's kind of embodied in Mormonism. So we were always taught to provide for ourselves. We were always starting little businesses on the side. I think most of my family now are founders of one sort of an, of an, or another. Um, and yeah, it was kind of a little bit of an idyllic, you know, small town uh, upbringing. 
And how do you land in Ukraine out of all places? Yeah, well, that's that's one aspect of uh, Mormonism that's a little bit different. When you are, usually when you turn 19 um, as a male in the Mormon church, you are supposed to submit your papers. And so you send off documents to the headquarters of the church and say, hey, I'm you know, willing to serve a mission. And you basically get a letter in the mail that says, you know, thanks for being willing to serve. Uh, you are assigned to serve in this mission. And you, you don't know what it's going to be when you open it up. So it's a pretty, you know, big, exciting time. Uh, you gather family and friends around and you open your letter. Um, so I opened my letter and it said Donetsk, Ukraine, um, which I had no idea what that was. And at the time, no one had ever heard of it before. But you go to a missionary training center for a couple of months. You learn as much Russian, in my instance, as you can. And then they ship you off to Ukraine to go do service and preach for a couple of years. So pretty wild experience. And I think one of the more formative experiences that I've had, for sure. No kidding. Uh, now, I guess, hey, for you as a human being, you know, how would you say that that formed you? And, and more importantly, you know, that frame of reference of, of dealing with the uncertain. There, there are a few things that happened. One is I became very grateful for things that I didn't even recognize I should have been grateful for. Or you, you kind of knew that theoretically, hey, I grew up in a you know, happy uh, middle class family. Um, but you know, I, I landed in Ukraine. Um, the first city I lived in was a city called Gorlovka. Um, and that's you know, nowadays even more. Um, you know, that city's been hit by a lot in the war and the folks that I know that are there have been have suffered a lot. Um, but going from, you know, middle class, small town America to eastern Ukraine, and it, it was in 2008. So Gorlovka is a little mining town. There's a big coal mine just outside of Gorlovka and almost everybody worked in the mine. And when I got there, the mine had basically shut down. All the foreign investment dried up. So people didn't know what to do. People were still going to work in the mine, even without getting paid, just on hopes that when the mine opens back up, whoever buys it would you know, give them back pay. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a desperate time for folks. And so to be thrown into that environment from you know, relatively cushy small town America was, was pretty wild. Um, and you know, you're learning the language, you're learning, you spend all day sun up to sundown just trying to talk to people and get to know them but yeah there, there's a lot of other stuff that i learned along the way but that was i think eye-opening is the, the the simplest way to put it yeah no kidding now you ended up uh, coming back to the u.s and uh, mm -hmm. you know you go to school but uh, you decide it's not for you so what happened there yeah i think on the mission one of the things i learned was really to think a little more independently. Um, it's, you know, it's not as difficult to think independently when you're so foreign. Like even though, you know, you're still a white guy that they would tell me I look like a Cossack in Ukraine, um, you're still very different. You know, you're wearing a name tag, you're wearing a white shirt, you're wearing a tie. And even Ukrainians, when they're dressing more formally, don't really wear ties unless it's like a black tie type of affair. So you had to become comfortable in your own skin and learn what it was that you wanted and you know that you were going to go after that and not default to what the consensus was of everybody around you that that wasn't really an option you know when i got back home started going to school uh i realized like 
first of all, I felt comfortable taking risks and, you know, in uncertainty and other stuff that I may not have been. And going from, you know, Eastern Ukraine to back to Provo, Utah, just felt very constricting. So I knew I wanted to be in tech. I knew at that point that I had wanted to start a company at some point, but I didn't know how to code. I didn't have any experience. I didn't have any background or resume to speak of. So I was reading online and I found a blog post of this guy that had lived in a Honda Civic in Silicon Valley while he, you know, he was a designer, but um, and he, I think he graduated with a degree in design. And that was like his way of just, I want to go there and experience it and be on the ground and meet people. And for me, even though I didn't have, you know, any tangible skill set that just really resonated with the way that I viewed life at that point is you just, you figure out what you want to do. You go get in the middle of it and you don't you know, make any excuses for yourself along the way. And funnily, you know, just by sheer happenstance, as I was reading that blog post, I realized that I had basically the exact same car as that guy. So I didn't have even enough money for a single month's rent in Palo Alto at the time. Um, but I just drove out and slept in my car for a few months, figured out how to, you know, shower at the YMCA. And there's a co-working space that I could go teach myself to code and start building stuff. And, um, you know, and from there, you know, met people and eventually ended up, um, it's a you know, long journey to get there, but ended up working as a growth engineer at a Silicon Valley startup. So it, it worked out. So then, I mean, that's pretty unbelievable. I mean, at what point were you like, hey, you know, finally I can get out of living in my car. You know, I can actually use like my own shower. You know, like when, when did that happen? Yeah, I mean, there were, there were so many experiences that were just surreal. You know, one, one story that I don't know that I've told very much is um, my car actually, I was driving down the 101 uh, and it broke down. And, you know, I, I had to call it, well, and this is going to sound so crazy that I don't know if people will believe it, but I'm sitting there on the side of the road and uh, on the side of the freeway, the police officer comes up and knocks on my door and he's like, hey, you can't park here. And I'm like, yeah, obviously I'm not, you know, that wasn't my plan. Um, he's like, no, you don't understand. Barack Obama's caravan is about to come through in a couple of hours and the Secret Service is just going to impound anything that's not off the road by then because it's a safety hazard. You know, you don't. The presidential caravan doesn't drive by parked cars, at, you know, as a safety precaution. So I scrambled, uh, found a tow truck driver that would come get me. Uh, I was putting stuff on a credit card at that point. I was out of money, and I I didn't even know how I was going to pay for the car. Um, the tow truck driver that picked me up was like, "Man, I'm like I am a little bit envious of your story, and I love that you're you know going after what you're going after. Let me." You know, let me hook you up in any way that I can. I can comp the tow truck ride. You can come stay at my place. Um, and, you know, the you should experience a lot of generosity at a time like that. And I ended up, you know, it's another story, scrambling, made a few hundred dollars that I was able to pay off the mechanic um, at, as he fixed something that was not, not terribly expensive um, and kept going for another day. But I think... You know, for, for me, the big lesson was like there's there are ways to figure stuff out. You you have to dig a little bit deeper and rely on other folks sometimes and be a little bit creative sometimes. But um, 
yeah, it was, you know, when I got my first job offer after that and realized I was going to actually be able to, you know, pay the bills and put food on the table, you know, I broke down and sobbed. Like it, it, for me, it was like, oh my gosh, I made it. I know that from here I can get to wherever, you know, I need to go. But if I can get that first, you know, I, now my foot is in the door and there's still a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unknown from here, but I know that I'll be able to to make it. So that was a pretty pivotal moment in my life, I suppose. Yeah. Wow. Now, there's a lot of people probably that are listening, you know, and that are wondering, you know, they're probably like all over the world and, and they're wondering like, how could I break into Silicon Valley? I mean, how is that? How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, my I pretty quickly was making, you know, into the six figures, which means less in San Francisco than it does in small town Utah. So, you know, I'd be, you know, back home talking to folks that the town that I lived in right before I moved to, to San Francisco um, is a town called Ephraim. And it's a town of, you know, 4,000 people. The median income is, you know, $35,000 a year. And, you know, a lot of farming, people working at gas stations, very rural area. And so when I go back there and I talk to friends there, it, it just seemed completely unfathomable. And the, the default recommendation when you talk to those folks is like, okay, you can go to college and that's going to be, you know, at current prices, four years and a hundred thousand dollars. And you, you realize that you're talking to someone who's, you know, been making $15 an hour that even the, the notion of spending a hundred thousand dollars on something, is just so crazy. And four years on top of that is even crazier. Yes, but that's the default path. And then one of the reasons we started Bloom Tech is because I'm looking at people and I'm like, I know that you could do what I did. And you don't even have to do it in that level of, you, know, you don't have to go extreme. You don't have to live in a car. You can uh, just learn to program on the side. You can apply to jobs the same way I did. You can meet people um, without ever leaving your house. But at the time, that there wasn't a great way to do that. Um, even, even though that was only a few years ago, online education hadn't really started yet. And what there was out there that was online was, you know, University of Phoenix, and you're going to be $80,000 in student loans by the time you graduate. And um, so starting, that's what inspired me to start Bloom Tech is I, I know what it's like to work in tech. I know what it's like to you know, be sitting, making not very much money without any credentials, wondering what the world could hold for you. And I knew that I could map those, like I could help people make that transition. And that's what we do all day, every day now. And, you know, I've learned obviously a lot more about that, but you know, thousands and thousands of people who have not necessarily moved to Silicon Valley, that's not the point of the company, but uh, move from non-technical fields to technical fields. Um, we're, you know, doubling people's incomes all the time. We're, and, you know, we're putting them on a path to where they'll make millions more across their lifetimes, where they can work remotely, where they have, you know, opportunity that just wasn't there. And, you know, half of Bloom Tech grads don't have a degree. So there's really, you realize that tech is meritocratic enough that 
if you can learn to do the stuff that employers want, they will hire you regardless of uh, what your background is or what your skin color is or what college you went to or if you went to college at all. It's a, if you can do the job, you can get hired. And so our, our job is to help you gain those skills, to help you know how to get hired. And I think one of the other pieces that folks kind of underestimate is speaking, you know, psychologically to that person who doesn't have experience in that world. You know, it's one thing if you're talking to a product manager at Google about what it means to be a software engineer. It's different if you're talking to someone who doesn't know a software engineer and doesn't know anybody who's ever made more than $50,000 a year. So that's what we've gotten really, really good at. So we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. But if you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Cruise. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every sales situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's asynchronous. I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com. It's just the Wingman yourselves needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high-growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast-growing businesses. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. Obviously, you know, at this point you had breaking into Silicon Valley, you were making, like you were saying, up in the six figures. At what point, you know, do you realize, because I'm sure that that was, you know, quite a leap of faith, you know, of everything that you had worked so far, you know, so hard to really get to, all of a sudden you decide, you know, that, uh, Hey, you know, like maybe I just want to start this company out. You know, obviously, you know, like it sounds like the idea was marinating, you know, and, and was there for, for some time, you know, especially given your own personal experiences. But what would you say, you know, was what pushed you over the edge to say, okay, let's go? Yeah, so I think there, there are a few threads that kind of ran together. Um, one is I 
I always felt like there should be a better path, a more direct path, something other than, you know, college, which was the default. But I also felt like I wouldn't be the person to start that because I, you know, not only do I not have a background in academia, I'm, I'm a college dropout myself, right? So who am I to create a new educational pathway when, you know, my default stance was not anti-education, but anti, you know, the way that education was being run and built. And so I was kind of waiting for someone to do this. And then, you know, the impetus for it, I, had, I took some of what I had learned and uh, kind of on the growth engineering side of things, um, I wrote a book about it and, you know, started selling the book and the book was selling really well. And so I went to a friend and said, hey, turns out that if you create stuff that's valuable for people, they'll just buy it. Um, so let's, you know, we're both really interested in this random programming language called Haskell. Let's put together a course that teaches people Haskell. Um, so we did that and it was, you know, it was still just side income money at the time. Although in retrospect, you know, the money I was making on the side was more than half of what my salary was. So it was, it was meaningful and we were just saving all of that. But then, you know, I realized that there are a couple of things that bothered me about that. One is um, we were, you know, we were kind of selling this information, so to speak, but I don't think most people were doing anything with it because uh, it's just really difficult to buy a book and implement everything that's there. And yeah, it's just hard. So we started saying, okay, what if um, we took other people through the same journey we went through, but instead of just, you know, putting it in a book, which is interesting, and I still hope to put together a lot of the stuff in a book someday, we actually, you know, hands-on teach people that. And so it started out just as a thing on the side where we're, hey, let's, you know, teach people to learn to code and get a job part-time online. And, you know, we'll charge some small amount for that enough to make it worthwhile. So we started doing that and it was awesome side income. And pretty quickly I got to the point where I was like, I, you know, I could quit my job. And he was like, I could quit my job. And then we were talking to a bunch of folks about, you know, we would teach free classes just to, you know, get people interested in like, what is programming? How, you know, what is everything like? Um, and then some of them would become interested and enroll in the full class. And as I was talking to those prospective students, like, hey, why don't you enroll in our full thing? Everybody was like, look, I love the idea of it, but I don't have money. That's the entire point of me being here. And like, you know, do I trust you guys enough to put an annual income on a credit card and just hope that it works out? No, that's crazy. I was like, yeah, that is crazy. So, you know, but at the same time, we were, our cash needs were low enough that it was like, well, surely we can find some way to help these folks, right? So it started out with, you know, what if you paid $1,000 up front and then you pay us the rest after you got hired? And we noticed that that flipped the switch in people because it changed, it changed what they were buying from, you know, I'm, I'm not buying this course that may or may not work. I am buying a potential outcome. And what is that outcome worth? That outcome is worth millions of dollars over my lifetime, right? So then we realized, well, wait, if we, you know, if we can have our skin in the game and we really put our money where our mouths are, why don't we make it zero dollars up front? Make it so you don't have to pay anything out of pocket. And if you don't get hired, you still don't pay anything. 
And then if you do get hired and you know you successfully make the transition into tech, yeah, you're going to pay us and you'll be happy to do so at that point. And that realization kind of unlocked the floodgates. Um, it's a very different business model to run than, hey, I'm going to sell you curriculum or I'm going to you know sell you an instructor who's going to teach you stuff. It's actually, we are going to provide an outcome or we're going to lose money on this. And that relationship is very different. That decision-making process is very different. And you know, it's a much more difficult business to run than just selling content, but it kind of unlocked everything. And before we knew it, we had far more demand for students than we had you know, capital to train them. And um, you know, it became cash flow optimization and you know, how do you raise enough money to keep things going? And, uh, how do you model out what the likely outcomes are? How do you improve those outcomes? Um, so it becomes a you know very different business than most education businesses. But I believed then, and I still believe that I it's it's going to be one of the most impactful organizations that ever existed on the planet. I, I fully, fully believe that. So just to to double click on that, Austin. Then for the people that are listening, what is the business model? How do you guys make money? Yeah, so um, there are a couple of different ways, but the the high level is uh, you pay us nothing upfront. Um, if you are if you you know look for a job and are unsuccessful, you still pay us nothing. And now, in fact, we pay you. Um, so you know we've learned exactly what it takes to get a job over time. So you don't pay us anything upfront. Um, if you get a job making more than fifty thousand dollars a year in you know a, a tech role then you pay us, uh, comes out to 500 or $600 a month for five years. Um, and if not, then we refund all of the tuition and we send you a check for a couple thousand dollars. You know, obviously we can't pay for all of your time when you're in the school, but you know, we put our money where our mouths are and it works. We've placed thousands of uh, students at every imaginable tech company that you can think of. There's probably a Bloom Tech grad there. Um, we have uh, now in our backend program, we have uh, partnerships like with Amazon. Amazon, um, we co-built our backend program with Amazon um, and Amazon's stated intention is to hire as many of those folks as they can. And there are other hiring partnerships that we have, but basically our goal is how can we make the likelihood of you being hired in a tech role as high as humanly possible? Because that's that's how we make money. And also, how much capital have you guys raised for the business? We've raised just north of $100 million. And what was that uh, journey like of raising all that money? Yeah. Um, I mean, so it's funny. In the early days, we were trying to figure out how to cash flow it all ourselves. So we'd have some people that were paying up front and some people that you know, couldn't afford to. And so we would put them on basically a pay later plan. And we, we started in uh, an accelerator called Y Combinator when that was still, you know, just a baby idea. And it was basically, you know, our Y Combinator application was basically, isn't it interesting that, you know, in order to make this work, you have to run the business differently. You have to you know, build something completely unique. It should be very scalable, but it's very difficult to build. And then from a student side, uh, you know, if you look at the options that are out there, they're very expensive, very risky. And why isn't there something, you know, why isn't there a better path that exists? 
and so we we started out in YC um, and we were cash flowing. Um, it was just me and my co-founder at the time, and we weren't really paying ourselves anything. And pretty quickly, the demand for you know pay later options. Um, so at the time, we used one called an income share agreement. Um, the demand for that was just way way higher than the demand for people paying up front. So you start building up a bunch of uh, income share agreements on your balance sheet that you know they'll be worth money later, um, but you're scraping pennies to teach the folks that are in the class now. And then you know I the company that I worked at when I was a growth engineer was in the lending space, so I'd spent a lot of time thinking about you know the way capital markets work and the way uh, you know, moving risk around works and the cost of money and realize like there's got to be a way to, you know, borrow against these uh, receivables that we have in the future. There, there's got to be a way to square that circle. Um, so we spent a lot of time just kind of knocking on doors on Wall Street and talking to people who know way more about structured finance than I did at the time. And we, we found ways to, to make that work. Um, it required a little bit of equity capital to to get started. Um, so we raised $4 million in a seed round uh, after YC. And shortly thereafter, we raised another 14. Um, a year later, we raised uh, $30 million in a Series B. And then we raised $75 million in a Series C. And after we raised the Series C, we uh, it was like early 2020, we were skeptical of the Silicon Valley model of, you know, just keep raising more and more money until, uh, and, you know, make it up in volume. So we started at that point turning the business to where, you know, what would it take to get the cash flows to where, you know, we're operationally cash flow positive. And it, you know, turns out that's way more difficult than raising VC and just continuing to, uh, to invest it all in hopes of more revenue coming in in the future. So that's been a bit of a transition. But we, you know, I can't say that we are cash flowing the business, but I, we are days away from that being true. Obviously, for you, I mean, that's saying that that was quite a shift. But I'm wondering, like, how were you able to also enroll all the investors, you know, and all the board members, you know, into that uh, into that school of thought? Because I mean, obviously, they're giving you the money; they want growth, 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 which is the typical, you know, mentality of Silicon Valley. So, how were you able to enroll everyone in that? Uh, in that future, in that thing, in that possibility. Yeah, I think in retrospect, we were lucky in the investors that we chose. And I, I think they're, you know, possibly because of, you know, our background and the way that I viewed the world. I kind of always viewed the business as, you know, it should be cash flowing and we're just investing a little bit ahead of the cash flow right now. And I would love for that to, you know, to not be true. I think every most good Silicon Valley companies can, with some changes, be operating at, at or close to cash flow positivity. But that was, you know, if, if you think back to 2021, that was not the mantra in Silicon Valley. It was spend, 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 grow, grow, grow. And I think we got lucky in some regard that we were surrounded by investors who both, like, I, I wouldn't say they don't believe in the spend, 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 grow, grow, grow model necessarily. Um, but they, they basically don't think you have to choose. Um, and if you can build, if you can structure a business in such a way that you, 
you bring in a dollar, you, you bring in more than a dollar for every dollar spent and make that cash flow transition happen quickly, then you can spend and grow simultaneously. So I think they kind of, re, so to speak, reject the notion that it's a choice between you know cash flowing a business and growing a business. Um, and I think we were lucky to have investors that were supportive in in doing that. You know, that said, not every investor feels that way. Um, and at the end of the day, it's you know up to you as a CEO and the board you've built to decide how to spend the money. And I think you know the reality is at the end of the day, it's the CEO that's making that decision. And yeah, I, I think you know looking at where capital markets are now, I'm fairly certain if we would have continued to spend far ahead of growth and just you know hope that we'd make up for it in volume later we'd be in a really difficult spot right now so i think we did the right thing it was painful and i think it was easy for silicon valley to underestimate how difficult it is to turn mythical future dollars into current dollars like there's a lot of work and a lot of operating a company differently that makes that happen but i also think it's incredibly healthy and the Silicon Valley that I look at now from, you know, as a friend of founders, as an investor, as a founder myself, I think it's in a much better spot than it was when money was effectively free. The businesses are just better. They're better run. They're making the transitions that you didn't have to make in past markets um, that now you do. And I think it's by and large for the better. So. Yeah. Now, I guess the um, the for the people that are listening to get a good understanding on the scope and size of the company today, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, we're we're keeping a lot of that close to the chest, but to give you an idea, so the, the student size, you know, we placed uh, in 2021, we haven't, it, it takes us a while to get all the data for a past year, um, but 2021, uh, we had just over a thousand grads hired um, in new roles, and their income increase was in the realm of $27,000 per person as a, as a median. Um, so obviously, you know, it goes way higher than that. And that, yeah, I'll give you an idea of the the size and scope, um, and then should be growing really quickly. On you know, we we try to not make headcount. A goal um, that's not, you know, purpose of companies isn't to spend as much in employing as you can. But yeah, so so from a student standpoint, uh, that's the the most recent number we've got. Got it. Now, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, Austin, and you wake up in a world where the vision of the company is fully realized. What does that world look like? Mm, um, that means basically. Every person on the planet has a way to raise their hand, be matched with the the market needs, the best potential place for them to get to, and without a penny out of pocket, be able to fully get there. Um, so, you know, we started out as a tech school, largely in the U.S. Um, we we dabble internationally here and there, but the the goal of BloomTech is to help everybody, you know, realize their full potential economically and otherwise. So it would be millions of people per year raising their hand, getting matched to jobs that are out there and not just within tech and not just within the U.S. So depending on how you phrase that, it's 
some of that is we have to do new things and explore new fields. And some of that is we just have to grow a lot. Um, but the, the core vision of the company remains the same. So obviously now, you know, we were talking about the future. So if we had the opportunity of taking a look at the past and, and reflect from it, and more importantly, imagine if I was able to put you into a time machine and bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to that moment where you were reading that blog post, realizing that you have the same car as the dude, you know, right in the post, you know, yeah. the Honda Civic. And you have the opportunity of having to sit down with that younger self and, you know, just just being able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? You know, on the one hand, there, there's not too terribly much that I would change. It, it would be, my, my advice would be largely personal. Um, so one of the things that happens when you start and grow a company is that company in many ways reflects the personality, the strengths and weaknesses and the decision-making of the CEO in a bunch of really little places. So I would, I would become more cognizant of my personal flaws that were going to flow into company decision-making and find ways to route around them. Um, so some of my weaknesses, to, to give you an idea, are um, not being fast enough to say no. I would say, you know, do fewer things and be, be sure of yourself instead of relying on not necessarily external validation, but even, you know, opinions of folks within the company, like operate according to your instinct, deferring less to when others say, hey, you should do X and it feels wrong to you, but you say, okay, I'm going to, you know, do that because I basically trust yourself more. And, you know, the other thing I would say is just, even if you have people focused purely on growth and you know volume um treat every dollar like it's your own or like it's your last and you do have to invest in growth you do have to spend ahead of revenue but just be so certain when you're doing so that it pays off you know really be willing to place that bet don't do something just because it there's no reason not to and they're, they're very, very tactical things that if I could go back now, I'd be like, hey, uh, don't hire this person. Uh, do this differently with your technology stack. This is what you should do programmatically versus this is what needs to be more of a service layer. Uh, there's you know, a ton of stuff like that. But I think overall, it would be more like, you know, be aware of your strengths and your weaknesses individually and be cognizant of those as you build a company. Nice. So, Austin, for the people that are listening that would want to um, reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah. Um, you know, for Bloomtech, we're bloomtech.com. I am Austin on Twitter, A-U-S-T-E-N. Um, or if you want to email me directly, I'm Austin at bloomtech.com. Amazing. Well, hey, Austin, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Oh, thank you. I don't know about that, but it's good to be here. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts, 
or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.